going to be taking a look this morning uh, in the Gospel of, of John. John being uh, one of Jesus' earliest and longest followers. And, and as an old man, he, he thought about the life of Jesus. And he thought of, of the stories of Jesus which were already being told all throughout the world. But he wanted to make sure that we see something. He wanted to make sure that we who would follow and trust in Jesus that did not see him with our own physical eyes, that we would see him for who he is, for what he was, for the work that he came to do, because he is convinced, he's convinced that when we see Jesus the way he really was, then we will experience a life that is altogether new, a life that never ends, and a life that is the kind of life we're made to experience. So if you would join me this morning in the second chapter, starting in verse 1. John writes, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jar, water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, which has now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Join me in prayer. God, we pray that you would make sense in our, our frail minds and, and confused imaginations, Lord, that this story that you told of, of a time long ago, but a real time, a time that happened in space, a, a time that happened uh, with real people living in the real world, God, that you would make this story clear to us, that you would help us to see you and to know you and to understand what it was that you came to bring us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope uh, that many of you have been given in life one of the, the same gifts that I have had. And, and that is to, to have spent time and to have gotten to know your, your grandparents. And I, one of the... I, Seriously, one of the best blessings of life is, is the summers I spent in high school being uh, my grandfather's little personal slave all summer, managing his going to his various rental properties or, or assisting in his various businesses, 
driving around with him in a pickup truck, basically lifting all the things his knees and back would no longer do for him. And along the way, I got to hear uh, many lessons about life, the, the most important kinds, um, you know, the, the, the little pithy things like there's no such thing as, as free, right? And don't begrudge your work, boy, or that's not how you swing a hammer. You uh, Never mind, I won't give you the full, the full picture. He gave us uh, lots of, of the stories, you know, the kind of stories that are repeated in your family over and over and over again. And some of them are good stories and, and some of them aren't, but they're told over and over and over again because they have a point. And this passage in John, this little story in John was treasured in my grandpa's telling of his life because it was the time that he bested his teetotaling preacher's wife. They were at some occasion, I, I'm not sure what the, the occasion was. It wouldn't surprise me if Grandpa had spiked the punch at the, the church potluck, okay? But the, the, the wife of the preacher was railing on about the evils and the dangers of alcohol, how uh, ungodly and disturbing they were. And, and so Grandpa always wanted to, to add a little argument to the mix, said, now, but wait a second, what about Jesus? He sure seemed to like wine an awful lot. And the preacher's wife said, no, 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 no. Back in, in, the, in the first century, the, the water was contaminated. It wasn't clean. And so, uh, so Jesus drank wine because there was no clean water otherwise for him to drink. And Grandpa replied back to her, well, are you saying that you don't believe Jesus could make purified water? Hopefully she smacked him for being a, a uh, I won't say that word either. But you get the, the, the point, right? This story is a little bit of a curiosity. It's one that was told to, to our kids, and we grow up in, in Sunday school learning. But what does it really benefit us? What is it really there for? Is it there for uh, my grandpa to make smart remarks to, to another person? Is it a, a proof text? Is it a one-liner? Does it have anything really of substance? It kind of feels like a, a cheap party trick, uh, a little showmanship, a magic trick that Jesus does at this party. And yet, this is a story. Of all the stories John could have started his gospel with, he starts with this story of explaining the ministry of Jesus, of giving a sign, a, a pointer, an understanding of who Jesus was. And if we're to, to believe John, it is his, the first action that Jesus himself chose to introduce who he was and his life and his purpose and his calling. And so this obscure and strange little party story becomes to us as, as this curiosity, the, a strange introduction, but it's one that we're compelled to seek to understand why is it important, what it's there for, and what difference does it make. I want to propose to us this morning that 
that the reason we have trouble with this text, the reason why we, we, we relegate it to a, a meme or, or relegate it to a, a proof text or a, or a party argument or a uh, merely a Sunday school flannel graph board, the problem is not with what the value of the text itself. The problem is with us. The problem is, is that we don't fully understand who Jesus was. Our, our understanding of Jesus' work in the world is, is stunned and it's confused. And so I want us to take a look at the passage this morning in three ways that I think our understanding of Christ is stunned. Our understanding of, of Christ's work is stunned. And because of those things, our understanding of our own lives is stunned. The first is this, that our understanding of who Jesus himself was is stunned. I've already, the, the end of this story in verse 11, John marks on this miracle and says, This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And it is here that he manifested his glory. Notice it doesn't say, and it is here that he presented his power. It's not here that he showed that he knew what he was talking about. It says it is here that he manifested, that he made known his glory. The essence of his personhood, his power, his strength, his position in the world is somehow somewhere in the midst of this story. But I think as we come and we try to grapple with this, we come to Jesus, and each and every one of us comes to Jesus with a, a background story in our brains, a, a narrative that's been repeated, a, a picture that we see when we think of him. And so for some of us, we come to this story with a, a, a religious moralism, a picture of Jesus as the one who, who came and, and he gave uh, these moral laws, right? He, he, he's came that he could uh, give us moral laws we couldn't live up to and then die so that he could purify us from our sins. He's a, a religious teacher who brings spiritual salvation. And we come to this text and we find Jesus at a party and it, it just doesn't seem important enough. What is Jesus doing at a party? What is Jesus doing this cheap trick have to, to do with the most important things, our spiritual salvation, with demons or healings or teachings? Jesus doesn't teach anyone here. What does Jesus at a party have to do with anything? And, and to make matters worse, Jesus doesn't just go to the party, right? Jesus isn't just around this, this weak long all community party a wedding in the ancient near east is a week-long celebration which would have been planned meticulously this is a party which has uh, gone on for some time we don't know how long but somehow in the course of time these folks have managed to drink an entire week's worth of wine before the week was out and so here comes jesus our moral teacher who comes and he produces for this party some uh, 100 and, well, we'll cut it in the middle here, 150 gallons of wine. Do you get, 
Do you understand? Like to a party which has already been going on and the people have already been drinking for many days, Jesus comes in with 750 bottles of wine. It's going to make some folks in church pews a little uncomfortable, right? But some of us don't come with a, a story of a, of a religious Jesus. We come to the Jesus story with a, a humanist Jesus. A Jesus who, who uh, we believe has some beautiful things to say, but a, a Jesus who, who was, at the end of the day, a, a human exemplar. A person who showed us that loving is more important than judging, but he's a, a Jesus that has no real impact, no real power. And we look at the miracles and we say, well, those were just for those silly early, uh, early first century people, the people who didn't quite yet understand how science worked or who don't quite yet understand the power. And so we come to this story of, of Jesus, and, and this story is strange for those people as well, because what, why does he have to do a miracle? Couldn't he just have provided the wine in the natural way? Why, not, why make up a story about a miracle? And both people, both people come to this story of Jesus, whether it's the extra-religious or whether it's the humanist Jesus, and we come and we're trying to tell Jesus what ought to be important to him, how he ought to have behaved. But the setting for this story is neither our uh, post-enlightenment humanism, nor is it our post-enlightenment individualistic morality. The setting of this is the Jewish people's waiting for Messiah. This kind of salvation that the people talked about was, well, it was a lot like what we read from Amos 9. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow from it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ancient cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. The kind of salvation that the people were waiting for a Messiah to bring was the kind of salvation that you lived in. It was a kind of salvation that brought real-world benefits, real-world flourishing, real-world life. And so to those people, this story begins to take a little bit of shape and a little bit of form. Right, Jesus here is, John's intention is to paint him and to portray him and to demonstrate for us the movement that people began to understand him to be who he really was, the Messiah, the Savior, the one who brings a whole body, whole earth, wine flowing, flourishing to the earth. But as we begin to, to, to wrestle and to unpack this real-world Jesus who brings about not just the, the salvation of your heart, but the salvation of your life in addition, is also marked by this, that our understanding of Christ's work is stunted. Our understanding of, of what Jesus is came to do, what his life on earth was for, is stunted because... Of our thoughts. The story begins with this utterly fascinating interplay, right? Between Mary, the mother of Jesus, and, and Jesus. It's fascinating because 
um, we, we see this interplay, this exchange of words between Jesus and, and his mother. And his mother comes to him. Most likely this is the wedding of a close friend or a relative. And, and so she is deeply concerned that the provisions, the wine, has, has run out, right? And so she, uh, according to, to ancient church tradition anyway, and it's at least plausible, is now a widower. And so it's very natural for her to bring a problem to her youngest, I mean, to her oldest son, right? We have a problem. We have a crisis. The wine has run out. And Jesus' response to her is, is, is fascinating. Woman, why, what does this have to do with me? Woman, what does this have to do with me? It, it can sound to, to our ears, a translation is difficult here because it sounds kind of rude, right? It sounds uh, kind of um, a, a accusatory. Woman, what do you have to do with me? But in the, it, it is still a bizarre way to speak to your mother. It'd be like if you lived in north and you called your mom ma'am. Right, like that doesn't happen in the north. Okay, There's, it's a strange formality to their the people's ears, but it's also an, an abrasiveness. This, the the trays in its most wooden translation is is what to you, what to me, and to you. It's a, it's an idiom that's spoken when it says, "What do you what is what you want and what I want have to do together? What is your purpose and what is my purpose have in?" common. We're on two different paths here, woman. What you want is not what I want, or at least your purposes for what you want are not what I want. He says, my hour has not yet come. Now, you're following along here, right? Like, <laughs> Mary comes to Jesus, and she's like, Jesus, we got a problem. We need to get some wine in here, stat, right? And Jesus says, uh, my hour has not yet come, sorry. Hour, uh, this, this word for hour, it's a very specific word in John. When John writes of Jesus' hour, when, Jesus, when John writes of, of the hour of Jesus to come, it's, it's always, in every single instance, relating to specifically the death of Jesus, the death of and the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus. But this gets us into even more bizarre waters, right? Mary says, hey, look, we need some wine. And Jesus says, look, it's not my time to die yet. Sorry. It's a bizarre and, and strange thing uh, that Jesus would tell his mother, no. But when you begin to remember the story that Jesus is living, the story of salvation that the Messiah was meant to bring, it begins to make a little bit more sense, right? Jesus is saying, no, my hour has not come. My purpose is not to be the master of this feast. The purpose of my being is not to be the salvation of this feast, but of a feast that is yet to come, a feast that uh, Amos talked about, a feast that Jeremiah talked about, a feast that Isaiah portrayed, Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand. It's, it's not my time to bring the feast yet. Jesus is this weird guy, right? He's, she's talking about a party, and he's talking about the salvation of the world. 
But the problem was not just that it was not time for him to die and to rise again. It's that there is a, a problem of sequence. You see, and, and Jesus understands that what he must do is come to die. In the Christianity, we, we believe that it is the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus that purifies, that cleanses us from sin. And that purity and that cleansing is necessary before the party of God's kingdom is to fully come. The purification must come before the party. I think about these, these stone water jars here. And I don't know if this is the, the picture he wants to present to us, but I think it's true. John goes out of his way to point out that these were stone jars used for the Jewish rites of purification. That these were vessels that were to be filled with water so that the people could, could receive a ceremonial washing. A washing that, that reminded them that they came to God to be cleansed. But that purification had a purpose. That purification had an end, and when the end was fulfilled, when the purification was needed no more, then those jars were ready to be filled with wine for the feast. That there would come a day when the purity would lead to the party. And again, we have the problem. Because some of us think of Jesus as bringing purity, but the purity has nothing to do with a party. And some of us want Jesus to be a humanistic, a humanistic focused savior who brings forgiveness and he brings justice and he brings healing, but he has nothing to do with purity. We don't want purity and party, Jesus, to come together. You have chosen one or the other to be predominant in your mind. And yet, when John describes Jesus, when Jesus brings himself to the world, he says, my hour has not yet come, and so I can't take my seat at the head table yet. Purity leads to the party. Purity presents its way through the death of Jesus to make room for the party. And this is where it comes back to us. That our understanding of our own lives is stunted. Because we've taken Jesus and we've said, here's the kind of Messiah that you can be. And we've taken Jesus and we said, well, now, here's the kind of salvation that you can bring to the world. Uh, some of us want him to bring uh, judgment. Some of us want us to bring freedom. But neither, none of us really want him to bring both at the same time. And so because we don't understand who Jesus is or what Jesus was coming to do, the talk of Jesus is always a tangent to our minds. Christianity is, is always a tangent, right? You guys remember geometry? This is how I know people, this is where people's eyes really light up in illustrations is when you say you remember geometry, right? The tangent, you have the circle and then you have the line and the line only touches the circle at one point. There's only one point that that that, that uh, line intersects the circle, and for many of us, that's kind of the story of Jesus for us. It has one kind of relation to our story, one kind of relation to our life in this world, but it's tangential at best. 
for to keep with our party theme, and we could choose any number of them, but if we're to stick with our party theme of, of going to a party, right? I hope you go to a party or two of some form or fashion. You go out with friends to eat or to drink. You, you celebrate a, a birthday, an anniversary. You go to a friend's house on the 4th of July or on Labor Day, right? And so when we come and we say, what does Jesus have to do with my party? Many of us uh, will have various things, but they'll be single-dimensional, right? Jesus becomes the, the dad who forbids you from going to that party, right? Because there's some bad influences there. Jesus is the God who, who tells you what you can and you can't do at the party. And believe me, he does, but that's only one part, right? Or, or Jesus is, is the person that you uh, can, can count on to bring you forgiveness for what you did at the party the night before, right? Jesus is, is either the one who gives you license to do what you want to do, or he is the one, the big meanie, who keeps you from doing what is really good. And so whether you're ultra-religious or whether you have very little to do with Jesus, you've taken Jesus and you've said, you can only touch my life at this one point. But Jesus comes into this story and when Mary comes to Jesus, she is in the mindset that we are often in, that we're at an ordinary party, a party that has no greater implications than the party day itself. But when Jesus comes to this party, this ordinary, common, hometown wedding celebration party, Jesus comes and he sees it as a reenactment of the kingdom of God. Jesus comes to this ordinary party, and when he's asked to come and to, to bring it and, and, and to save the party uh, from a dry death, he, he pictures it as a reenactment of the kingdom of God, and he says, I'm not ready yet. Jesus comes to the party, and John highlights this, and he'll do it over and over and over again as we go through the Gospel of John. The people come to Jesus, and they think, look, I got this one problem. The wine is out, right? My daughter is sick, right? I got this one human problem, and time and time and time again, Jesus will, will spout off something that they have no possibility of understanding because he is referring to their daily life as an enactment of the kingdom of God. John will present us to this over and over and over again because in Jesus there is no ordinary party. Every party that you go to and every party that I go to is a taste of the kingdom of God. Every party you go to, every party that I go to has at its very least the potential to, to display and to reenact the festival joy that Jesus came to bring. It's communal celebration. John will oftentimes reflect on these Jewish festivals, these Jewish celebrations, right? You have the Passover to celebrate, to remember, to reenact how God delivered them from the, the land of Egypt. But it begins here, this story, with Jesus at a party saying this party is like the party that is yet to come. 
this party for the disciples here at the end, the disciples who saw his glory, the disciples who believed in him, this party, this common, ordinary party allowed them to get a picture of what God was doing in the world, and it transformed them. Every party has a chance to fill your heart with thanksgiving, and every party can whet your appetite for what has already been given and what is yet to come. Now, I want to be careful here that I, I, I say this clearly. What I'm not saying is, is that you ought to go out and, and over-hyper-spiritualize everything in your life. What I'm not saying to you is you should go to an ordinary party and you should uh, pretend like it has something to do with God, that you should romanticize it and say it has something to do with God. What I'm saying is, is that party already is an expression of the kingdom of God, a taste, a brokenness, uh, a, a distorted but yet real picture of the kingdom of God. And so you will go to that party, and that party, you will either experience that party as a joyful, thanksgiving, worshipful celebration, or you are going to go to that party, and, and it will be a place to indulge and to reaffirm your individual gratification, to, to find a way to escape from reality. Either that party is going to elude to the beauty and the power and the majesty and the joy of life in God's kingdom. Or that party is going to take you and cover your eyes and pretend like the sorrows and joys of life are not real. God made you to live in this world seeing the salvation, the whole big salvation, the salvation that brings purity for your sins and brings joy, unimaginable joy to the life that we will live together with him in his kingdom. Now, this is a funny uh, point to make, and it's funny because um, going to a party is, is, is one of those things that I could never look at your life and tell you which way you're living. I can never look at the, the pure facts of the matter of, of I can't look at the drinks that you drank or the, the conversations that you had and, and I can't place particularly whether you are experiencing that as a Christian with joyful, thankful expectation or whether you're experiencing that as a, a, a person who's afraid and who is fleeing and wants to escape reality, to indulge the flesh. But I think that the scriptures bring us a lot of clarity here. How do we know which one is it for us? Well, we can, uh, one really easy way in this, in this particular uh, application is the question is, is, are you drunk? Are you drunk? Right, because if you're drunk, right, if you have uh, continued to consume and, and, and glutton yourself with alcohol to the point that you're no longer in your rational state, right, then you can pretty clearly tell yourself that you've refused to receive with thanksgiving the gift that God gave you, as Paul told Timothy, or that you have failed to drink to the glory of God, as he reminds the Corinthians. 
right? You have an opportunity to, to live in this moment, to, to experience the festival joy of, of God with the good gifts of wine and the good gifts of his people, right? And you have the opportunity to, to see those as the reality which is to come, the festival joy of God, and you've taken that opportunity to see God in his fullness, that portrait, that painting, and you've torn it up and, and used it as kindling for a fire. You've torn it up and used it as, as toilet paper, something for your own personal gain. How do we know which one is it? The other question you could ask is, is did you refuse to go into the party? Did you refuse uh, because uh, you thought that going to that party uh, was something that would, for sinners, that that party was for people who, who didn't have it together like you? Did you use that party as a chance to pat yourself on the back and say, see, I'm not like them? To try and convince your heart that you, you are in control. That you can provide for what you need. Now listen, there's, there are a uh, hundred reasons in our fallen and broken world that will keep us from experiencing the festival joy of God. And if we're going to take this down into the nano bits of, of alcohol consumption, right? There are, are things in our stories, our past deeds, the the sins of our fathers, right? The genetics in your body that, that make it impossible to be in certain environments and see the beauty and joy of God, right? But the longing uh, of this experience of Christ, of seeing the whole world good salvation that Jesus comes to bring is not that we will, is that one day you will be able to. That one day you will enter in. And so don't hear me saying that Jesus commands you to consume alcohol or Jesus commands you to go to this party or that party. But it does ask you the question, are you really following the real Jesus? Or are you following a Jesus whose rules make you feel better about yourself? Finally, how do we know which one it is? Have we experienced and embraced a Jesus that is involved and active in every second of our lives is can you give thanks or did you give thanks was it a celebration that reminds you that drew your heart in prayer and praise and thankfulness to god and say god thank you for these people that you have given me to do life with thank you for the good gifts of food and drink that you have given us right or has it fueled you to cont contemplate how you can get that feeling back again by, by using more of the physical gifts, by using more of the people that you were surrounded with? The opportunity that we have here is, not, is that every party can be not just a party. Because if you go to just a party, a party that has nothing to do with God and nothing to do with God's kingdom, then you are depriving yourself of a life of thanksgiving and joy that God has called you to. You are submitting yourselves to, to a form of, of slavery, a slavery that's either by the rule book or a slavery that's by the bottle. But in either case, we're trying to find joy and life on our own when God means to welcome us into his party. This text tells us that in this miracle, 
when Jesus takes this water and he pours out wine, an abundance, an excessive amount of wine for this festival joy. And there were people there that day like this uh, master of the feast. The master of the feast who received this physical blessing from Jesus and he had no idea what it was. A master of the feast who, who received a, a glass of wine and, and he admired it for its beauty and its, its, its taste. He admired it for, for how good of wine it was, but he went home that day not knowing the glory of Jesus. It's like Jesus has, has performed in secret this orchestra. He's conducted this orchestra, and, and there were people there that day who listened to the music, and they appreciated it, but they went home with nothing to keep, nothing to hold on to, nothing to savor. But there were also people that day who could see him hiding in the pit, who could see the wand, uh, the swing of his wand as he uh, created a beautiful masterpiece, who saw that day the artist going about his work of bringing festival joy to these people. And it is them, his disciples, who saw the manifestation of the glory of God at a party. It is those people, his disciples, who when they saw the manifestation and the glory and the power and the joy of God Almighty on earth believed in him. Each and every day we're invited, invited to know a Jesus who whether you're at a party or you're at work, whether you're awake or you're asleep, whether you're with family or friends or by yourself, a God who is bringing redemption and wholeness and we can choose to try and grab a hold of those physical goodness just for ourselves. Or we can see the hand of God that is spilling out his salvation, who is encouraging our hearts and who is pointing us, beckoning us, inviting us to come and to follow, to come and to see, to come and to know what real life is. Pray with me. God, we pray uh, this morning, Lord, that you would open our eyes. God, that you would transform the vision of what we think the world is, the vision of what we think good is in the world. Lord God, would you take us in the place that we are, and Lord, would you remind us of the fullness of life that you are bringing, that every taste, every hint of that truth, Lord, would resonate in our hearts, that we day after day after day would be compelled to come to you with worship and thanksgiving because we see your hand swinging the baton, leading us towards the fullness of your life. And God, we pray that you would hasten your coming, Lord, that you would come again to finish the work that you started. God, that you would bring the day when our life would not be interrupted, it would not be scarred, it would not be broken, it would not be interrupted with tears and sorrow, but a life, a life that will be eternal and a life that will be as you made us to be, to bask in your glory 
to be known by you and to know you. Pray this in Jesus' name.